Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Paul Wells. Yes. Formerly of Twitter. Currently in McLean's Magazine. How you doing? I'm good. Slow week here in Ottawa. Yeah. Uh, we'll see if we can perk things up. Today we are going to talk about GB versus Jode. Who do you believe? And the thing that Andrew Shear can get away with, the Jagmeet Singh simply cannot. All will be revealed. Welcome back. Thanks. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Christine Ball, Jeff Hayden, Haley Borja, Kane Vassallo, Devin Cusino, Eric Stiller, Todd Fanter, and Garyan Hicks. My name is Garyan. I'm a student in Vancouver. I support Land because it provides a diverse and interesting perspective in a thoughtful and considerate way. And Paul Wells, this episode is brought to you by Endy Mattresses. I don't know uh, what your mattress situation is, Paul Wells. That's a closely guarded secret. You don't, you don't owe me any answers here. You're, you're, you're not the one on trial. This is the most comfortable mattress uh, that Paul Wells has never slept on because uh, obviously he, uh, 
He doesn't have an ND, but as a good Canadian, he should, as should anyone who... No, get an ND because it's a, it's a good mattress that's cheap because they make it here in Canada. And they avoid all sorts of costs uh, involved with shipping and customs and materials. Everything's in Canada, so it's the cheapest mattress in a box you could possibly hope for. Perfect balance of comfort and support, pressure relief, motion transfer resistance. You can roll around on an ND mattress. Your partner won't feel a thing. This is the mattress that I sleep on every night. I'm here to talk about it. How bad could it be? Uh, I like my ND mattress a lot. Check it out. If you don't like it, you got 100 nights with it. You can send it back and they'll give it to somebody who really needs a mattress. But you probably won't do that because it's a good mattress. Go to ND.ca. Use the promo code CANADALAND. You will get $50 off of any ND mattress. I am not here to quarrel with the former Attorney General or to say a single negative word about her personally. What I am here to do is to give evidence that what happened last fall is in fact very different from the version of events you heard last the week. The Prime Minister gave and maintained clear direction to the PMO and PCO on this file. That direction was to make sure the thousands of people whose jobs were, and it bears repeating, are at risk were at the forefront of our minds at all times. On November 26, she wrote, Hey there, GB, do you want to chat? I have a number of things to bring up. Maybe you do as well. Tomorrow after cabinet, perhaps. Thanks, Jode. Ms. Telford's comments were reported here last week out of context. On the op-ed point, she was simply saying that we would do our best to support the minister, whatever decision she chose to make. It would seem that you determined that there was a problem. You communicated with PMO that there was a solution that was needed. But you tell us today that you weren't looking for a solution or an action. You just wanted her to take another opinion. So who is right, Jody or you? Well, somebody's not telling the truth. I'm not sure that's true. To use a tedious uh, phrase that's in vogue, I think they could both be telling their truths. And what we see is radically different ideas about the role of the uh, director of public prosecutions and radically different ideas about the proper tempo of government. You just made it sound so much more boring than it is. Come on. <laughs> well, look, I'm off Twitter, but I've been creeping Twitter, and I see an awful lot of people who think that I've been uh, close to a stroke. I'm so, I'm so bent on destroying this government. So today I'm trying to calm down a bit. <laughs> well, after that, McLe- it seems like every time you hear it, it's because there's some McLean's cover that everyone's talking about written oh, by yeah. Paul Wells. That, uh, and this time, this time it was a good one. Uh, I think that this does come down to who you believe, Gerald Butts or Paul Wells. Yes, and of course, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould is is uh, not relevant. No, look, um, Paul, how dare you? She's a, she's essentially saying that the that the decision of the of the director of public prosecutions should normally be final, and that after a quick review to make sure that she dotted her eyes and crossed her t's, the AG's role is done. That essentially the director of public prosecutions is a serious person who's competent to make serious decisions, and Jerry Butts is saying. Well, no, that's ridiculous. The AG can second-guess those decisions all the way up until a verdict is rendered in, a, in an eventual criminal trial, which means, like, you know, potentially for the next couple of years. And that the entire apparatus of government is free to come check in on the AG every few days to see whether she's uh, called off the public prosecutor. That, that's a very different view. Like, the, the things that are obvious to him are really not obvious to her. And I have to say, as an amateur who's outside government, that I find her view of things quite a bit more attractive 
for the independence of the prosecutorial function in this country, which in most civilized countries is an important thing. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, okay, obviously, I think it's accurate that they had wildly divergent ideas of what was going on and that the PMO, I mean, at a minimum, they were completely in the dark and, uh, you know, kind of embarrassingly off base with what one of their highest ranking ministers believed was happening. But I don't think that Gerald Butts or you are going to be able to get away from certain key discrepancies here. I mean, it was specific language in her very compelling testimony that they kept pushing her to find a solution that, you know, the wording that that Gerald Butts told one of her people that uh, some level of interference is inevitable here, that uh, the, the prime minister brought up electioneering to her, that he is saying, oh, I'm not going to call her a liar. I'm not going to call her a liar. But none of that ever happened. Look, he is silent or refuses to discuss very important parts of her testimony. He disputes almost every specific turn or phrase that she employs. All the killer quotes from her testimony, he says that's not the way he remembers it. Or he says, in the case of that parade of other staffers who went to talk to her about the election, it would be hearsay for me to comment on anything they said. And they're not the kind of guys who would have said that. Um, Uh the, The effect of that is that his testimony is a complete black hole for any assertion that anyone threatened her with electoral consequences for her decision. And I think that's really important because if anyone had accused her of partisan cost for her decision, then the government's own ethics handbook says that would have been spectacularly out of line. So as if by magic, the only thing that he doesn't remember, doesn't have records of, can't speak to is the one thing that they absolutely should not have done. Right. That's there, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, I think he did pretty well up there, given the circumstances, but there was a fair amount of, uh, I can't remember, or that's not how, I, you know, vague, you know, pleading the fifth kind of stuff. And let's not kid ourselves. Like, what, what happened with Gerald Butts, that performance or the testimony, that was one of the most important couple of hours of his life. Yeah. I mean, this was a pivotal pivotal scene that he would have as a very intelligent and thorough person with great legal counsel have uh, he, he seemed inc- incredibly well prepared for it so i think that the, nothing was uh, you know unconsidered about what we heard yeah there's interesting echoes in it i mean so for instance the whole thing is about whether the attorney general's final decision was ever a final decision in the middle of it scott bryson gets up and says you know i'm leaving i'm leaving politics after 21 years and both the prime minister's chief of staff and the principal secretary say, oh, fuck off, Scott. No, you're not. You know, come back after Christmas and think it over. Like, it's almost as if no decision by any cabinet minister registers on these people. Right, right. Because they had a month to shuffle the cabinet and they blew three weeks of it hoping that Scott Bryson didn't know his own mind. It's starting to look like a pattern of behavior here. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, consistent with a frequent complaint about Canadian politics, which is that it's it's very heavily top down. Everyone's whipped. It's uh, you know a, a certain kind of autocratic uh, Stephen Harper era thinking. So, no, that- no, well, no, I, I think it's a little different. These guys seem utterly impervious to obvious events. It's why it took them a month to deal with the fact that Jody Wilson-Raybould had blown up on their watch. Yeah. It's it's why, frankly, when I organized the debate in 2015, it was the Liberal Party. It was these two people who were spectacularly the slowest to come to ground on whether they were going to participate. This is not an ethics problem. It's a functional problem. 
it's not a it's not a crime against proper constitutional governance it's a get your head out of your ass problem these guys can't begin to operate at the tempo at which the world operates I think that's that's interesting and that's a good half of it but the other part of it and the part that I love and I'm 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 not going to pretend like I, this is a delicious scandal. There's still people on Twitter saying, "Oh, this isn't really a scandal because no laws are broken." I mean, the wheels are coming off. It's a scandal at this point. Uh I don't think it's just a silly thing to to argue. This is the the biggest scandal I think this government's ever faced. What I love about this scandal is it's not a scandal about somebody slept with somebody or, you know, Maxime Bernier left his government documents at his girlfriend's house or somebody bought an expensive glass of orange juice. I mean, usually scandals are outliers, you know, like somebody just kind of fucks up around the edges and we, and, and it's a gotcha that they were sloppy about something, but this is a scandal. And it's just sort of what you wrote about in McLean's about the way Canada is and always is, which is also why it's not a scandal. I mean, that's what the other side is saying is like, wake up and grow up. This is just the way things work here. Yeah. But it's as if Canada woke up one morning and said, hey, certain mega corporations should not be given special status and and protected from criminal prosecution under laws that they lobbied for in the first place. That that should not be. We don't want that. And and that actually, you know, the thing that should be scandalous is, is actually what's scandalous in this case. Well, this is why I began to say that I think we have a pretty serious rule of law problem in in, in the country. Prosecutors must not be allowed to prosecute when it would be bad if, uh, uh, depending on the outcome. Remember when the extradition order was moved against the executive from Huawei, a lot of the old boys who had been in Chrétien's government said, no, 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 what you should have done was warn her Mm -hmm. before she entered our airspace that there were cops coming after her. I don't even know how that's supposed to function, but it sounds pretty bad. And then we have the spectacular case of systematic and well-prepared cronyism around uh, the attempt to appoint Tavener as the head of the OPP in, in Doug Ford's Ontario. And I note that Andrew Scheer, who's very upset about the ethical shortcomings of the government in Ottawa, hasn't had a word to say about the cronyism at Queen's Park, which leads me to suspect that if we were to change governments, we would not actually have a higher level of regard for due process. I mean, it keeps pointing out the hypocrisies that have always been with us. Uh, Also in the media, and it was interesting to me, of course, when Jody Wilson-Raybould testified that the PMO said, don't worry, don't worry, we'll get some friendlies uh, to uh, get some op-eds in the papers to support your move, uh, should you move towards the uh, deferred prosecution. You know, we'll we'll make sure that there's some favorable editorials in the press. And very quickly, Kathy English came forward, the public editor of the Toronto Star, to say, ah, she actually wrote that that's laughable. The notion that the office of the prime minister of Canada or any other politician could simply line up all kinds of people to write op-eds yeah. and expect them to simply end up in our newspapers is both disturbing and laughable. And I think Robin Urbach at CBC agreed that this was, uh, you know, what, what a silly PMO to think that they could get all these editorials in the papers. Well, <laughs> I mean, all you have to do is read those papers. Like yeah. Heather Malik in the Star uh, the SNC-Lavalin story is made out of air. SNC-Lavalin controversy, just put it to bed, writes Heather Malik. Jeffrey Dvorkin, uh, who, full disclosure, I'm on very friendly terms with, writes for the Toronto Star, is the SNC-Lavalin affair a failure of governance or a failure of journalism? Uh, also really shrugging it off. In the Globe and Mail, Barbara Yaffe, look away, there's no scandal here with SNC-Lavalin. Jamie Watt, 
who for some fucking reason uh, of Navigator has a column in the Toronto Star, mm-hmm. uh, who I think SNC Lavalin was a was a client of theirs, also writing about this. Nothing to see here. Like, what does this say about the press that this is like the biggest story of the year politically for sure? And there's so many voices telling us, eh, move on, nothing to see here. I guess a couple things. First of all, it's a nice kind of counterbalance to people like Coin and I who have our hair on fire over this uh, thing. Like I say, I creep Twitter and, and, and I'm told, I'm given to understand that a lot of people wish we would go away. But also, I don't think it's, I don't think you <laughs> I thought need... you quit Twitter. It's the second time you've mentioned that you've been creeping Twitter. Oh, fuck, fuck man. What's, what am I supposed to do? Read books? Uh, no, yeah, no, I quit Twitter, so now I creep Twitter. But... Um, the other thing is you don't need Katie Telford to tell Heather Malik to write those kinds of columns, right? These people are perfectly self-starting when it comes to not caring about, you know, scandals that upset conservatives. I- I'm still not sure what Katie Telford thought she meant by that remark. I can tell you that her efforts to inflect what I've written over the years have met with pretty spectacular failure after failure. and <laughs> She finally gave up some time ago. I think what they meant was that essentially lawyers would write uh, in and kind of stroke their chins and sound learned, and they would say, well, the, uh, the attorney generals... I mean, it, the, the funny thing is, if the attorney general had just done this and instructed the director of public prosecutions to enter into one of these new arrangements, these deferred prosecution agreements, nobody yep. in Canada would have wanted an op-ed because it would have seemed so boring that editor after editor would have said, you want to submit an op-ed about what? <laughs> You know, it was interesting to hear Butts testify today, like that nothing to see there either. When he was asked about this placing op-eds thing, he goes, well, it's pretty standard practice to try to find friendly people in the press, which I'm sure is both true and also should be scandalous. Like he's saying like, oh yeah, we covertly manipulate public opinion through sock puppets in Canada's supposedly independent press. What did you think was happening? And then you and, and Kathy English and everybody else says, well, not me. I'm above reproach, which I'm sure is true, except for the fact that we give too much credit or too much importance on, well, that's not an editorial from the editorial board or from one of our staff columnists. That's an op-ed from some professor or some strategist. The the reader, all the like the fact that an opinion is just sort of being pushed at you two or three times through the paper to launder and legitimize it serves that purpose from government's point of view. And that's why those editorials are run all the time. And I, I frankly don't think that editors are, are, are careful enough about asking questions about where this stuff's coming from. See, I've heard, I heard about this like almost 20 years ago in regard to something that Stéphane Dion was doing as intergovernmental affairs minister back uh, when dinosaurs walked the earth. It was described to me as lining up third party validators. You know, no, I think it was this, his green shift when he was the liberal leader. And the idea was that the liberal party at that time would call up environmental groups, you know, Pembina and uh, Separa Berman and I don't know who else, and brief them on the plans and encourage them to say they liked it if they liked it. And basically, they'd be ready in case someone called. Mm-hmm. In an ideal circumstance, you could line up some quotes ahead of time so that your press release would include quotes from people who weren't in the party or the government or whatever, but who had agreed to have their name associated with uh, with this effort. It has ever been thus. I, I, it's on the list of things that scandalize everyone, but I like if you were to create the world from nothing in the next seven days, you would just create a world in which political parties would try and line up support for what they were doing. That's not a huge surprise. 
No, I think that the only scandal there is that uh, they they can do it so easily. I mean, like you say, those are the most boring ass editorials. And uh, it's you know, if, if our press was more concerned about writing stuff that people wanted to read, as opposed to just sort of for some reason deferring to the prominence of the these. Uh, you know, submissions. And I, I don't know. I mean, it, it explains a lot. And obviously it happens every day. Well, I mean, I, I will say, though, that every time we at McLean's write something that we hope people will read, I get called onto your show because people are going apeshit that we made the effort. So whatever. <laughs> Poor Paul Wells. <laughs> okay. So wh- where is this all like left? I mean, this definitely was a good day in a month of bad days for the Trudeau government. I think Jerry Butts did some favors to his buddy. And now it's kind of like maybe the public can leave this and like, okay, you know, different people perceive things different ways. But there has been a lot of back channeling going on. And I noticed that um, Sheila Copps has been doing uh, the rounds. She's been on the circuit. And, you know, Gerald Butts can say, I'm not going to call anyone any names, but top liberals have been calling Jody Wilson-Raybould names under guise of anonymity. And then Sheila Copps had this to say on CBC. You said that you think that Mr. Trudeau should get tougher, but the suggestions that, that what's coming uh, in the next day or so is some kind of statement of contrition, that he has to has to be more contrite and take ownership. I wouldn't be contrite. He hasn't done a single thing wrong. And in fact, when Gerald Butt stepped aside, he basically said that in a statement. And I did write a column saying, I think, had there been 9,000 Aboriginal jobs involved in her decision, she would have viewed it differently. What? What? Yeah. That's the one thing about those uh, indigenous people is that they don't want anyone else to be employed. I, like, you know, what do you do with something like that? Um, uh, I, I don't know. But I mean, I don't think that, she, like, I don't know. Am I overly cynical? Is Sheila Cobbs just out there defending uh, the prime minister through bizarre racist arguments of her own volition? Or is she carrying water for the party where she spent her life? I can believe both to be true. It is rich for Sheila Copps to be uh, asserting that uh, loyalty is the highest value in the Liberal Party of Canada when she did her best to undermine Paul Martin's leadership when he became the new leader of the Liberal Party, when having ruled right over her. She ran against his designated candidate for a nomination, you know, and that was perfectly fair then. Like, people are allowed to have different uh, ways of being liberal just as they have different ways of being human. Do you think that the public is uh, ready to call this one a draw and move on? That's sort of been the Canadian move towards uh, keeping things on the status quo and on the level. And maybe I've been guilty of this too, of being at every turn of this to say, well, this is probably done now. I don't think it is. I think there's substantial damage from the month it took them to begin to come up with any kind of narrative. And I think that the assumptions behind the argument that Jerry Butts made essentially make the office of the director of public prosecutions risible and fake. If no decision by the director of public prosecutions is ever final, if no decision by the AG not to second guess the the DPP is ever final, then what that means is we essentially don't have a director of public prosecutions who makes her own decisions. And we essentially don't have an independent criminal process. Yeah. And if... A parade of staffers can go to the attorney general and say, look, we're going to lose the election. And then their boss magically becomes unable to ascertain whether that ever happened by the time it comes time for him to testify at committee. That's dark. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. 
We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Paul Wells, you know your way around this show. We have a segment called Duly Noted. You have brought something, I am certain, to note Duly. What is it? I want to give a shout out to my colleague Joanne Chianello at CPC here in Ottawa, who's done story after story after story, breaking news about how the light rail transit system here is laughably awful and far overdue and may never actually function. The latest one is that they forgot that that there's winter in Ottawa and that uh, it gets cold. And when it gets cold, apparently the trains and the LRT system, the undercarriages freeze, the doors freeze. And I guess the funny thing about this for people outside of Ottawa is that the trains are being built by (laughs) SNC-Lavalin. Duly noted. Duly noted. Bad week to come out with some story that you've been working on that's completely unrelated to this stuff. So it's nice to have a little bit of a tie-in. Yeah. Okay, I got one. Hillary Beaumont, a very talented reporter at Vice News, published an investigation into Mike Smith, the actor who played Bubbles on Trailer Park Boys. I guess plays Bubbles. I guess it's a going concern, Trailer Park Boys, now and then. Mm -hmm. So I already knew from uh, 2016 that Mike Smith had been charged uh, for domestic battery after a witness uh, said that they saw him choking a woman in LA at a hotel bathroom, and I think that the woman didn't want to press charges. This is a news story about an old case. Uh, Hillary Beaumont's headline, Mike Smith of Trailer Park Boys accused of a sexual assault. And the accusation is actually from 2005. It's a pretty serious one from a young woman who uh, was a college student at the time who uh, tells a harrowing story of uh, seemingly being drugged and, as she says, sexually assaulted by Mike Smith. And it's all these really, really disgusting details about the bar scene in Halifax back then. And 
Mike Smith had a few different nightlife locales, uh, Bubbles Mansion and others. So these places were kind of notorious for underage drinking and women passed out in the bathrooms. And um, I'm duly noting it because it's it's one of these really interesting kind of borderline stories that is not landing with the public with any one kind of consensus. There are certainly a lot of people who feel like this is information that they are happy to have. And then there are a lot of people saying, well, this is uh, old news, 14 years old. And he was never even charged. And what are you ruining this guy's life for? The reporting in the story and the sourcing is incredibly thorough. And you can just tell what a difficult story this was to get out there. And ultimately the kind of conversations about, well, you know, this is going to have an impact on his reputation and his career, I'm sure, and his personal relationships. On the other hand, if you were thinking about going on a date with him, would you want to know this or not? That's something that Hillary kind of has to wear all of the, and absorb all of the the feedback and the blowback. And, uh, you know, I am unsurprisingly on team, it's better for people to know about this stuff than not. And uh, yeah, it's a story that people should at least read and make up their own minds about. Duly noted. Finally, Paul, we're going to talk today about a story that uh, this was brought up by Supriya Devetti, a former host of Candleland Commons. And uh, you suggested that we take a look at this because Supriya raised a really good point. It has to do with the very different receptions that different politicians have gotten from the press based on their, you know, guilt by association or by their, why am I speaking in generalities? Let's get specific. This is what it sounded like uh, when Jagmeet Singh became the leader of the NDP and Canada's journalists were very curious about his relationship with Khalistani separatism and specifically Khalistani terrorism. Where does Jagmeet Singh stand on Sikh extremism? It's a question that's dogged him since winning the federal NDP leadership last October. Do you think that some Canadian Sikhs go too far when they honour Talvinder Singh Parmar as a martyr? Let's get a pivotal question out of the way. Do you condemn without reservation and by name Talwinder Parmar for his role as the architect of the Air India bomb in 1985. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh on a media blitz today after being criticized for being soft on Sikh extremists. A poster calling the leader of a violent Sikh extremist group a saint dominated the stage, the stage where Jagmeet Singh gave his speech. Mr. Singh, we just heard the audio of the co-founder of the National Sikh Youth Federation, and he's talking about violence as a legitimate form of resistance and you were sitting right beside him. You didn't even blink. What were you thinking? So that's what it sounded like when Jagmeet Singh was held to task for appearing in front of a poster of uh, a terrorist or sharing a stage with somebody who advocated violence. Here's what the press asked of Andrew Shear when he appeared at the United We Roll Yellow Vests protest in Ottawa, an event where Faith Goldie also appeared and spoke. Yeah, nothing. There was uh, there was one thing. There was Andrew Shear was questioned about it in a scrum, and we would have played that tape, except it's sort of inaudible, and he just sort of said, "Well, I was there for the jobs, jobs, jobs," and that was it. But uh, as Supriya pointed out, where were the uh, hot takes and the suggestions and the questions and holding to account? How dare you legitimize this movement? And 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 you know, it's not just that Faith Goldie was at that event. Perhaps they can't control. I mean, you, you kind of think that they knew that she was there, but this was an event where there were signs accusing 
accusing Trudeau not just of being a bad prime minister, but of treason. There were uh, copious signage about uh, the UN migration pact, anti-immigrant sentiment, the history of the yellow vests and their connections to various white supremacist uh, groups is well documented by, by Canada Land and others. And Andrew Scheer seemed to get a complete free pass for pandering to that crowd and uh, associating with that element. Yeah, I asked if we could discuss this because uh, I think Supriya, uh, she's got, to some extent, she's got us dead to rights. Um, there was a hell of a lot more coverage of uh, Jagmeet Singh and Sikh nationalism than there is about Andrew Scheer and white nationalism. I do believe there are extenuating circumstances which I can rhyme off. I mean, the Sikh nationalist rallies that Singh showed up at were for that purpose, and the iconography was could not have been clearer. For the purpose of Khalistani separatism or for the purpose of terrorism in the name of Khalistani separatism? Well, so he stood in front of a poster at one sovereignty rally, like, and I mean, directly in front of one where, where it said, freedom from slavery is only achieved when a person starts to prefer death than living like a slave. Whereas uh, the PMO said that uh, Andrew Shear had stood in front of a billboard calling for the prime minister to be tried for treason. If you look at the photo, he's, he's standing like in the same city block as that billboard. It was, you know, like you, you really had to be shooting from a very specific angle to even get them in the same frame. Uh, okay, okay, but come on. Like, well, this this idea <laughs> that the radicals at United We Roll were a fringe element. I mean, I, I don't know where the poster was, but the anti-migrant message and the calls for treason were not a footnote to that rally. The organizer of that rally would cite the UN migration thing whenever he a microphone was put in front of him. That was one of their chief demands. Yeah, although I think if you were to, you know, look at the predominance of the signage, it was about pipelines. I mean, I saw things saying pipelines, pipelines, pipelines. And they don't like this. They don't like the migrants. They don't like the number of them. They don't like the irregularity. And that's problematic. And, and every news organization that I saw had a hard time figuring out how to weigh those two elements. And mm -hmm. I do think that a lot of them soft pedaled the anti-migrant stuff. But I, isn't it just what it seems? Singh is brown, Khalistani, it's a very scary thing. And, you know, these are nice white oil workers. Uh, we're kind of biased and prejudiced to sort of side with them and give them benefit of the doubt that we would not extend to the other cause. Isn't it just racism? I'm going to say no. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to say not exclusively. Like, for that to work, you're going to have to say that all of the journalists, look, say I'm a racist. You know, you, you wouldn't be the first. But all the journalists covering this entire caravan from one end of the country to the other are systematically ignoring every element that doesn't fit a pipeline narrative. I don't, I don't buy that. No, I'm not saying that at all. And in fact, uh, even during the coverage, which I was very critical of, I made note that a lot of journalists, as you say, struggle to find a way to cover that stuff. And I think ultimately soft peddled it or, or said, oh, this is sort of the marginal voice here. And frankly, they hadn't done the homework because if you actually delve into the forums and find out what is the philosophy of this stuff, uh, not just anti-migration, but, uh, uh, you know, this bizarre globalist conspiracy theory, like racist white supremacy ideology is uh, very much intertwined with the whole yellow vest thing in Canada. And I think that the reporters were coming to it late and jumping on the caravan and then trying to figure out how to explain this stuff. 
stuff. So you and I, there's not a lot of light between our positions there. But to our original question that Supriya brings up, there is an Overton window of acceptability, and it was diligently enforced by the press when it came to Singh, that basically for any legitimacy, he was going to have to disavow, and maybe he should, this uh, Parmar uh, terrorist, but we are absolutely giving Andrew Shearer a pass, and we're basically saying that we're, we're willing to... Uh, you know, entertain the possibility that there's more legitimacy than bad stuff in this whole United We Roll thing. I don't think that Singh has been relentlessly dragged through this issue for the last two years. I think that there was a feeding frenzy, which you captured quite nicely, for a couple of weeks in March of 2018. And mm-hmm. uh, if he's had problems since then, they've been uh, quite an impressive array of other problems. And I also don't think that uh, Andrew Scheer has a clear run from now until Election Day on these other issues. I think the association of his campaign chief, Hamish Marshall, with Ezra Levant, has been and will be brought up again and again. I think that his relative proximity to the people of Rebel Media and, and Faith Goldie and has been brought up and will be brought up again. I suspect that it's actually one of his three or four biggest vulnerabilities heading into this election cycle. And yeah. especially because his criticisms of the uh, UN Migration Pact are silly and aren't tenable and are pretty much, you know, word for word synonymous with what you'd hear on Fox News at a minimum. So I think there was a moment when Singh was taking a hell of a beating on this issue. And there was a moment when a preoccupied Ottawa press gallery covering <clears throat> another big story let this caravan come to town without scrutinizing it very closely. But I don't think, uh, especially in Shear's case, I don't think the story's over. I'll agree with that. I do think that there is a double standard. And, you know, perhaps a more interesting thing is that there is a point to trying to enforce these standards or at least present them as questions, uh, which is maybe a more appropriate role for journalists, because when the rebel was really showing its disgustingness and the content was getting more and more extreme, pushing those questions to conservative leaders, you know, and when the rebel would kind of uh, walk over a new line of bigotry, then saying to conservatives, are you going to give them interviews was the only reason why they were essentially disenfranchised and pushed outside of legitimate accepted political discourse. And whenever that's left alone, it creeps back in, you know, Doug Ford distancing himself from Faith Goldie only happened because pressure was exerted and you go through everything Faith Goldie has said and you have to prove again and again and again that she, yes, she is a disgusting racist. What do you think about that, Doug Ford? And then, uh, you know, under duress and at great pain, he will say something distancing himself from Faith Goldie. And then if you leave it alone, they'll start to get closer and closer together again because there are votes there. There are votes there for conservatives. So it's sort of worth it to be, you know, a passionate press about this, I'd say. I think a lot of people have really strong feelings against what they consider an activist press or a partisan press. But I think it goes for all sides. Like there is a point to demanding that people let us know where they stand on these issues. And if they're going to say, yeah, I'm okay with what the rebel has been saying about migrants and George Soros and God knows what, and I am going to give them an interview, then that's their answer. uh, And they can wear that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how far these kinds of uh, questions can go. The other night I saw when I was creeping Twitter, uh, a picture of me having dinner with my wife and 
Candace Malcolm in San Francisco and, and her husband, because Candace is, uh, has written a lot about the UN Migration Pact. She used to be on Rebel News. She's an associate of Ezra Levance. And she runs this pretty uh, gross anti-immigrant site these yeah. days, right? And, um, you know, the association, the fact that uh, Kaz and Candace and my wife and I had dinner is proof, therefore, apparently, that I believe in all the worst things in the world. I, I think it's pretty clear that I disagree with almost everything Candace writes. I think she disagrees with most of what I write. But that photo exists. And like the, just as there's a photo of me and Justin Trudeau out there looking ridiculous, this gets um, used to demonstrate you know, various arguments about, about what kind of horrible person I am. My personal preference is that what I actually write uh, should be used to ascertain how, whether I'm an awful person or not. I believe I give all kinds of people plenty of ammunition to decide I'm awful based on my writing. But it's a lot more fun to, to post a picture and say, well, the, the, the debate's over. And yet you and I have never had dinner. No. I, I, frankly, Jesse, I would advise you not to do it because apparently it's an awful thing to eat with me. Well, the optics aren't good. But, you know, <laughs> Candace Malcolm, you say what you want about her. Her husband is a Muslim. She'll remind you at any... Uh, she might even eat spicy ethnic food. You could probably confirm that at this point. Yeah, we were at a Thai restaurant. There you go. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Paul Wells, thank you. Thanks. Uh, I can be emailed at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that is sent to me, and we are on Twitter at Canada Land. Paul Wells, where can people find you? I'm on Facebook. Uh, I walk down the street in Ottawa and can be easily accosted. Also, he writes for McLean's Magazine. Our website is canadalandshow.com. If you haven't read our alternative history of the Globe and Mail at their 175th birthday, shocking stories that you might not know about in the history of the Globe and Mail, you can check it out there. This episode is produced by Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. 
The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.